go ahead and start the uh, airway management chapter, chapter 11. And again, we'll um, some of this will be review from the EMT. A lot of this will be review from the EMT. But then as we get toward the back of the chapter, we'll talk more about the acid-base balance again. We'll talk about the superglottic airway devices. We'll talk about CPAP, a uh, little bit about transport ventilators. Um, and then, of course, when you go to look on your thing, you'll see airway test, but then you're going to see the advanced airway test as well. So just as a reminder, you need to get caught up on your chapter test if you haven't done that. You only have to do the ones, those that are just joining the class now, you only have to do the ones that say advanced on there, the chapters that we covered in class. But it doesn't hurt, but it really helps if you go back and take some of those others, especially before you go take your advanced test as a little bit of a review. I would highly recommend you doing that as well. So, but you got to be caught up on your current test too. So let, let's get that done. I know it sounds like I'm preaching a little bit, but that ain't what I'm trying to do. We're going to talk about all that. All right. What happens if a patient does not have a patent airway? They die. Is that like some of the times, a portion of the times? Every time. Without an airway, your patient will die. Without a doubt. Um, so it, you might say it's fairly important, right? So obtaining and maintaining a patent airway, ensuring the patient is breathing adequately. It is the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. If something's wrong with airway, what do you do? Fix you fix it. You fix it before you go to breathing. But if something's wrong with breathing, you fix it before you go to circulation. It's the same way every time. Oxygen reaches body tissues and cells through the breathing and circulation. Uh, inhalation moves, uh, oxygen moves from the atmosphere into the lungs. That's that ventilation, right? The, the physical expanding and relaxing of your chest wall. And every time you do that, you should be pulling in about how much air? About 500 milliliters or cc's, whatever you prefer. Um, that's on average. And then when you pull in oxygen, then you exhale, you're getting rid of carbon dioxide and some of the other byproducts of um, the metabolism and, and body processes. All right, so if the airway is divided into the upper and lower airways, what's your dividing line? What separates the upper airway from the lower airway? Yeah, but specifically, more specifically. Huh? The glottic opening, the space between the vocal cords. That is the dividing line from the upper airway to the lower airway. Uh, and again, you know, when you're listening and assessing breath sounds or, or what have you, and you hear different uh, adventitious airway sounds like snoring, gurgling, wheezing, rails, ronchi, strider, you should know instantly based on the sound where the problem is. Y'all remember that? So what are some, some adventitious airway sounds that are associated with upper airway problems? Strider. Strider. Now, you hear, do you hear that when they inhale or exhale? Inhale. That's inspiratory, high-pitched sound that tells you that either through uh, illness or some sort of injury, that airway is swelling shut, right? All right, so that's Strider. What's another one? Snoring. Snoring. What does that tell you? What's the problem? Tongues partially blocking the airway. What do you do for that? 
first, what do you do for it? Head tilt, head tilt, chin, head tilt, chin lift, or jaw thrust, depending on whether it's a medical patient or a trauma patient. And then OPA, MPA as your basic adjuncts and then other stuff. So strider and snoring, what's another airway sound associated with upper airway problem? Gurgling. Gurgling. If you hear gurgling, what does that mean? Fluid. Fluid, liquid in the upper airway. What do you do? Huh? Roll them on their side. Roll them on their side and suction. All right. So what are the sounds associated with the lower airway? Rails, ronchi. What's the difference between rails and ronchi? The amount of fluid, right? Rails are sometimes called crackles. It's just a little bit of fluid in the lower airways. But that ronchi is that one that you hear from across the room, right? That you, you don't even really need a stethoscope. They call for something and you could just hear that crap moving in their chest. That's ronchi, heavy fluid. And what's one more associated with the lower airway? Wheezing. Wheezing. There you go. Wheezing. Obviously, at, whenever registry ash gives you a scenario and they're saying wheezing, they're probably wanting you to say asthma. Okay. Now there are other things like an emphysema patient's going to wheeze, and there's other patients that will wheeze, but the main big red flag thing they're wanting you to say on your test when they say wheezing is asthma. Right. Ventilation is the exchange of air between the lungs and the environment, what I said a minute ago. That's the physical expanding and relaxing of the chest wall. The diaphragm and muscles of the chest wall are responsible for the regular rise and fall. The intercostal muscles in the diaphragm are your normal muscles of, of ventilation or respiration. Um, of course, now what are your accessory muscles? Do y'all remember those, like if you're having difficulty breathing? Sternoclinomastoids, and there's two more. No, those are normal. Intercostals and diaphragms are your normal muscles of respiration. What are your accessory muscles? The ones that's when you're having difficulty breathing, you're kicking in, you're trying to expand that chest a little bit further so you can pull in more air. Sternoclinomastoids, the scalene muscles, S-C-A-L-E-N-E, -E, and your parasternals. So with a name like parasternal, where do you think they're at? Para means what? Around. Near. Sternal. Near the sternum, right? All right. And here's a drawing. Diaphragm. Nares of the nostrils. Then you got the, the, uh, the larynx, or excuse me, the pharynx. And so the back of the throat behind the nose is the nasopharynx and then the mouth or the oropharynx, the epiglottis. What's the epiglottis again? It's that leaf-shaped little piece of cartilage, right? It flaps between the esophagus and the trachea depending on whether you're swallowing or breathing. And just break that word down if you ever forget it. Epiglottis. Epi means what? On top of. It's on top of what? The glottis. The glottic opening. It's right on top of it. So then you come down the trachea.
to the where it bifurcates into the right and left main stem bronchi. And what's that area called? Where it, where it bifurcates? The carina. And then the left and right main stem bronchi continue to bifurcate. And they bifurcate 15 times and get smaller each time they bifurcate. And then at that 15th generation of bifurcations, the bronchi turn into bronchioles. And what are the terminal ends of the airway that's located at the end of the bronchioles? Alveoli. How many of them do you have? 350 million. Why is that a good, easy number to remember? That's how many Americans there are, right? So one alveoli per American, 350 million. And then the alveoli is surrounded by capillary beds, right? Because this is where diffusion takes place. One of your respirations, you have external respirations that take place in the lungs and then internal respirations that, that, that kind of occur at the cellular level all over the body. Y'all remembering most of this? Okay. Major functions of the upper airway are to warm, filter, and humidify air brought into the body. Uh, the pharynx is composed of the nasopharynx, oropharynx, and laryngopharynx, like we've kind of already touched on a little bit. The nasopharynx is the uh, union of the facial bones divided by the nasal septum lined with ciliated mucosal membrane. If something is ciliated, what does that mean? Yeah, it's got little hairs on it. So what do you think the job of that ciliated mucosal membrane that's in your nose, What, why is it mucous membrane to begin with and why is it ciliated? What is it trying to do? Stuff that's not supposed to be in your lungs kind of keep it out, right? Because you have these turbinates in there too that when you breathe in, it kind of, just like it's, the name implies, it makes the air more turbulent. It swishes the air around that you're pulling into your nose. Then that way the little hairs and the mucus can kind of catch them, whatever it is. The oropharynx uh, is part of the throat found at the posterior of the oral cavity. And the epiglottis is a leaf-shaped cartilaginous flap. It's located at the base of the tongue and above the larynx. And again, you got your thyroid cartilage just inferior to that. You feel your cricoid cartilage or your cricoid membrane, and then it leads down into your trachea. Or if you listen to some of them videos on the YouTube, there is the trachea. He ain't from around here. All right, so the lower airway. Uh, says the function of the lower airway is to exchange the oxygen and carbon dioxide. It's where the diffusion takes place. And we've already talked about all that. But there's a picture of your carina where your trachea bifurcates. How many lobes do you have in your left lung? How many lobes do you have in your right lung? Total of five, right? 
And the lungs are covered by a membrane like every other organ in the body. The membrane that encapsulates the lungs is called the pleura. It has two layers, right? The visceral pleura is the inner layer that covers the lung itself. The parietal pleura is the layer that's posterior, I guess, or uh, not posterior, but outside. It's the outside layer that kind of comes in contact with the inside of your thoracic cage. Um, is there a space between the two layers? There's a potential space, that's right. It's not there normally, but because of injury or whatever, it could definitely be there. All right, it says, oxygen diffuses through the lining of the alveoli into the pulmonary capillaries and surfactant lines the alveoli. What does surfactant do for the alveoli? Prevents it from collapsing when you exhale, right? And what is it called when the alveoli do collapse? Atelectasis. And if you're auscultating breath sounds and you're hearing every time they exhale and then inhale again, if you're hearing a, little, a bunch of little clicking sounds, that's literally the alveoli collapsing and then re-expanding when they breathe in. Um, which patients are we talking about here when we're talking about atelectasis and surfactant being gone? Which one specifically? Primarily emphysema patients, that's right. These are the people that breathe through pursed lips. And why do they do that? Yeah, they don't understand why they're doing it, right? But they know if they breathe like that, it makes them feel better. That's all they know. But because that surfactant's gone... They keep that back pressure on their on their bronchial tree, and it prevents some of the alveoli from collapsing. Therefore, they're not retaining as much carbon dioxide, so they feel a little bit better. The space between the lungs is the mediastinum. Uh, it's where the heart, great vessels. The esophagus, all that's located. And what's the name of the nerve that runs pretty much from uh, the cranium down to the diaphragm that helps you, that controls your breathing? Huh? Oh, man. I'm such an idiot. No, you just wasn't reading, that's all. <laughs> the, um, you said the, um, what'd you say? Vegas. The Vegas. Okay, now no, I was thinking of something else. The phrenic nerve innervates the diaphragm. Uh, and again, the respiratory and cardiovascular systems work together. And they start working together at an optimal level at about what age? At about 18 years of age. Up until 18, they haven't really meshed together too well. But they uh, help to ensure a constant supply of oxygen and nutrients to every cell in the body. And I asked this question last night, but and I've asked y'all this before, but does blood flow to all the cells all the time? No. Skeletal muscles, I think those are the ones that can go the longest. They could go a couple of hours without oxygenated blood, it, it, you know, if you're not doing anything. Um, so... 
But it does that, ensures the carbon dioxide and waste products are removed. And, of course, the heart pumps blood to tissues of the body. Arteries carry oxygenated blood. Veins carry deoxygenated blood. Is that always true? What are some examples? Umbilical cord in pregnant female is backwards. And then your pulmonary arteries and pulmonary veins because what really makes an artery and vein is direction of travel either to or from the heart. Veins travel to the heart. Arteries obviously travel away from the heart. So, Sufficient external ventilation and perfusion are required to deliver adequate oxygen. And on the surface, that kind of seems to contraindicate what I just said, right? If the, if the oxygen is not used, obviously it doesn't have to be resupplied, but the oxygen's there because that cell has to produce energy for itself. And time is critical. Time equals what? Time is tissue. The heart and the brain are the two organs that really have to have that constant supply, right? So one, zero to one minute that the brain goes without oxygen, what starts to happen? I said the brain, but yeah, the heart. Zero to four minutes, brain damage is not likely, but four to six minutes is definitely possible. But when you get to six to ten minutes, brain damage is likely and more than ten minutes, irreversible brain damage will occur. So, and I tell you, and I always, uh, you got to kind of keep everything in perspective. Um, and, and for those that are joining in the advanced part, you didn't get the luxury or the pleasure of hearing me say a million times, but, you know, we make life or death decisions every day whether you realize it or not if you and I'm not being ugly but if you decide not to be very familiar with your first due territory and you go to an intersection and you hang a left instead of a right is that potentially life altering absolutely it is so hell you don't know it's probably 10 minutes before you got the call in the first place right so it might not matter anyhow but seconds really do and minutes really do matter so, ventilation is the process of moving air in and out of the lungs. Like I said, we normally do about 500 cc's at a time, 12 to 20 times a minute, right, for the adult. Inhalation is the active process of respiration. It's the muscular part of breathing. In other words, that's the part that you have to do work to get it to, uh, to happen. Air enters the body through the mouth and nose and moves to the trachea. What if there's another hole in the chest wall from a bullet or something? Is air going to enter there? Yeah. It's nature, right? And those pressure gradients occur. Air is going to find its path of least resistance, I guess, kind of like electricity, and it's going to enter whatever means it can to get to the chest wall to equalize those pressures. The diaphragm and intercostal muscles contract to fill the lungs with air. Why do the diaphragm and intercostal muscles contract? 
Yeah, chemo receptors detect elevated levels of carbon dioxide. Sends that signal to the brain stem, which is where your apneustic centers are, and then uh, it sends via the phrenic nerve. It sends that signal on to the diaphragm, intercostal muscles, causing them to contract. That is correct. Partial pressures, and whenever you're talking about partial pressures and and again that's one of those things that can be just as complicated as you want it to be but imagine like we take the we take a breath we take that 500 cc's of air in right it's not just 100 percent air it's 21 percent oxygen 78 percent nitrogen and one percent other gases right so imagine you're you're breathing in that old pie graph that equals 500 cc's, or pie chart, I should say. The partial pressure of oxygen is what? 21%. The partial pressure of nitrogen would be 78%. And all of it together equals 100. 100% of that 500 cc's. Exhalation does not require muscular effort. It is the passive process of respiration. Once you pull that air in and the pressure is equalized and then you do that swap for oxygen for carbon dioxide in the alveolar uh, capillary membrane there, then you relax. And when you relax, the chest wall resumes its normal size and shape. Now the Volume has remained the same, but the size of the container gets smaller, so pressure uh, elevates to the point to where pressure inside your chest is greater than uh, the pressure in the atmosphere, so air rushes out until it equalizes. What makes us stop breathing in? The herring brewer reflex, which is located in the stretch receptors of the lungs. It's, I guess, a... Defense there that keeps us from overinflating our lungs and causing injury. Uh, our drive to breathe is based on pH changes in the blood in the uh, cerebrospinal fluid. So if the pH is part of our normal drive to breathe, how is that possible? Why do we breathe? Build up a carbon dioxide, and what follows carbon dioxide in the body? Hydrogen, Hydrogen ions, which is acid. acid. So, to say that the drive to breathe is based on pH, pH changes is accurate, but it's the ba- the change is based on the amount of carbon dioxide. When oxygen levels rise, respiratory center suspends respiration until rising carbon dioxide levels stimulates. The respiratory center. Oxygenation is the process of loading oxygen molecules onto the hemoglobin. Molecules in the bloodstream. Where is the hemoglobin? The red blood cells. And when you put a pulse oximeter on somebody's finger and it it reads whatever it's going to read... What is that actually a reading of? Is it actually a reading of the amount of oxygen adhered to the hemoglobin? Or is it a measurement of the amount of hemoglobin with the assumption 
that oxygen has adhered to it. There you go. It's just an assumption because things like carbon monoxide will adhere to it 200 times faster than oxygen will, right? So uh, it, it always goes back to that same concept. You need to treat the patient, not the machine. If you have them on a pulse oximeter and it's saying 100%, but they're telling you they're having difficulty breathing, maybe they're sitting in the tripod position, speaking in one to two word sentences, like can't breathe, what are you gonna go with? You're gonna treat the patient, not the machine. That's right. And at high altitudes, we don't have to worry about that around here, but at high altitudes, atmospheric pressure makes it difficult uh, to bring in adequate amounts of oxygen um, when we take those breaths. <laughs> Alright, let's get started back. Uh, metabolism. What are we talking about? What is metabolism? Production of energy. Cells take energy from nutrients through a series of chemical processes. What's another name for the metabolism or the process in which the cells produce energy? What's something else that it's called? Cellular respiration. Cellular respiration, but it's called something else too. Huh? So there's two other names. I'll accept either one of them. Krebs cycle. K-R-E-B-S. Krebs cycle, but it's also called the... Uh, oxidative now, I don't even know what you said, brother. <laughs> you don't know what you said. All right. Also known as the citric acid cycle, I believe. All talking about cellular... Metabolisms of cellular respiration, making energy. So, uh, and again, we said a hundred million times the cells have to have oxygen and sugar to produce that energy. Uh, if you're going to have normal, I guess, cellular byproducts, carbon dioxide, a little bit of heat, a little bit of moisture. Uh, process of exchanging oxygen, carbon dioxide occurs through diffusion in the lungs. What are some things that could cause diffusion not to work so well? Fluid, Fluid in the alveolar space would absolutely do that. What else? That's the biggest thing, right? Because once the oxygen gets there, there's other things that could prevent the oxygen from getting there in the first place. Those would be what? What are some examples of those problems? Pulmonary edema. Okay. What else? Things that would prevent oxygen from getting to the alveolar space. Uh, airway blockage. Airway occlusions. Broken ribs. Maybe there's not 21% oxygen in this area to begin with, right? Everything's working right, but you can't pull in what's not there. Correct? So so where am I going with this line of questioning? What what principle am I talking about? Because no matter what 
just the fixed principle. That's right. No matter why they're not getting that oxygen, no matter why it's not circulating to the whole body, no matter why the cellular respirations aren't taking place in all the cells of the body, the end result is the patient will complain of difficulty breathing and all the little things that we just talked about are their elements or components of the FIC principle. Good deal. External respirations take place where? In the lungs, right? That's correct. The hemoglobin molecules pick up the fresh oxygen as it crosses the alveolar membrane and is transported to the left side of the heart and then therefore that 70 milliliters of the time is ejected out of the left ventricle and sent throughout the body. Where internal respirations can take place and that is the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide between systemic circulatory system and the cells of the body. And then it goes on and on. What is the difference between aerobic and anaerobic metabolism? Yeah, the presence of oxygen. Aerobic is the normal circumstances where the mitochondria convert glucose into energy in the presence of oxygen. And uh, again, we're talking about the Krebs cycle, uh, the citrus citric acid cycles what it's called sometimes too and anaerobic metabolism obviously uh, is not the same because there is no oxygen so therefore the byproducts are different and the byproducts of anaerobic metabolism would be what pyruvic acid and then it converts just a few minutes later into lactic acid correct huh I figured. All right, neural control of breathing. Primary control comes from the medulla and the pons, the medulla oblongata, right? You've got the front and the back of the medulla that control different parts of your breathing. The front part of your medulla is called the ventral respiratory group, and then the back part would be known as the dorsal respiratory group. What does the dorsal respiratory group do as it pertains to your breathing? The DRG, what does it do? It initiates it. That's what sends it down that, what nerve? The phrenic nerve. That's right. So what does the VRG or ventral respiratory group do? The motor control. Okay, controls the muscles. Those are the apneustic centers in your brain stem. That is what controls your breathing. Chemoreceptors, uh, which detect the, the, the levels of carbon dioxide and other chemicals, or the chemical composition of your blood, regardless of the chemicals, they affect your respiratory rate and depth. If you have more carbon dioxide, what's that going to do to the rate and depth of your breathing? Gonna make it deeper and faster, right? What's that? What's the major metabolic cause? I guess of of, and it's an acid-base problem, but it's a metabolic cause that causes your respirations to get really deep and really fast. DKA. Diabetic ketoacidosis. That's right. What do we call those respirations? Those are Kuzmols, right? But 
why do you breathe really deep and really fast if you're building up carbon dioxide and therefore building up acid? Trying to blow it off because that acid's going to follow the carbon dioxide and you need to go back up the pH scale close to that 7.35 to 7.45. And look at there. DRG, VRGs. Uh, disruption of the pulmonary ventilation, oxygenation, and respiration will cause immediate effects on the body. Again, hypoxia is the first one. It becomes a little oxygen deficient, and then the body starts to react in different ways. Uh, tissues and cells uh, are not getting what they need to produce that energy uh, through the aerobic uh, metabolism process without that oxygen. So they start to react. Uh, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease have difficulty eliminating carbon dioxide through exhalation. And we already said why, but why? Why do they have problems eliminating carbon dioxide? The emphysema patients specifically. Atelectasis. The alveoli collapse and kind of traps the carbon dioxide there. So therefore they breathe on the hypoxic drive, which means they breathe because of a lack of oxygen. And that is why paramedics and a lot of protocols now have been changed to where if somebody sat in over 94%, what does the paramedic probably want you to put them on? Like a nasal cannula, probably four liters per minute or less. So you always follow your protocols, but as far as the EMT test and advanced EMT test goes, non-rebreathing mask is still what you use. Um, unless they can't tolerate a mask. That's what the curriculum says. So don't let that trip you up. Signs of early hypoxia, restlessness, irritability, apprehension, fast heart rate, anxiety. Why is the, why is the heart rate picking up if they're becoming hypoxic? Epinephrine's released causing a heart to uh, uh, speed up not only its contractile rate, it's, it's increasing the inotropic properties of the heart too, so it's contracting harder, um, trying, to, trying to get more oxygenated blood to all the places it needs to be. Whenever you see this, mental status changes, you know that the hypoxia in the brain is, that's not an early sign. It's then gotten to the point where it's fairly critical. And like, and I guess my personal experience is where I've seen that the most has been automobile accidents. You show up and they, you know, they've obviously hit their head. They maybe have a hematoma, maybe the windshield spider webbed or whatever. And they keep asking those repetitive questions, right? Where am I at? Well, you're on highway, whatever. Well, what happened? So you were in a car wreck, then they literally turn and look at you again and say, where am I at? What happened? I mean, they ask the same questions over and over again. You know, the lack of oxygen is definitely starting to, to affect their, their, their mental capacities, and you need to do something. When the, weak, when the pulse starts to become weakened, what do you know about their ability to compensate? They probably already overwhelmed it, right? Because if they were still releasing that epinephrine, what would the pulse be doing? 
it'd still be getting strong or it would be strong. Once it starts getting weak and starts to slow down, they've exhausted their compensatory mechanisms, and that is definitely a late sign of hypoxia. And then if they're cyanotic, well, that's easy to figure out. Uh, what do we mean ventilation perfusion mismatch? Somebody look in the book. Somebody explain ventilation perfusion mismatch to me. Ventilation and perfusion must be matched to exchange gas by simple effusion, uh, simple diffusion. Result of inadequate perfusion is less oxygen absorption in the bloodstream and less carbon dioxide removal. So basically, would you would you agree then that ventilation perfusion mismatch may be when you see them the chest rising and falling? They're pulling that 500 cc's in in adequate amounts, but for whatever reason, something is interrupting one of those links of the FIC principle, right? So it's not getting to all the places it needs to get. Does that make sense to y'all? <coughs> all right. Interruptions to the central and peripheral nervous systems definitely can affect ventilation. Uh, what is hypercapnia? Overall increase of carbon dioxide levels in the bloodstream. What are the normal levels of carbon dioxide in the bloodstream? 35 to 45, 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. And why is that an easy number to remember? Because yeah, pH is 7.35 to 7.45. So normal amounts of CO2 is 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. So if, what then would hypocapnia be? Not enough carbon dioxide. And if someone's conscious and alert and able to speak to you in suffering from uh, hypocapnia, what might they be telling you? Fingers and face tingling. And if they don't slow their breathing down, what's going to happen? And more hands are going to pull in. And if they still don't slow down their breathing, what's going to happen? They're going to pass out. And then, boop, the reset button is going to get hit on their breathing, right? Extrinsic factors like trauma, foreign body airway obstructions like broken ribs or whatever, you will literally mess up your own tidal volume because it hurts too bad to take a deep breath. What is respiratory splinting? You didn't see that. Huh? Mm hmm. And I'm gonna let that go just because you understood the reference. <laughs> what does your book tell you about respiratory splinting? 
死车烟女生。A decrease in pulmonary ventilation. But why? Is it because you have those broken ribs? Yeah, flail chest and breathing. Flail chest. You're doing it on purpose. You're messing up your own tidal volume just because of the pain. But, so, so here's a question. If you come up on a patient, maybe they do have a flail segment of chest, and you see them taking real shallow breaths, what should you do? Because is that adequate? Is that is that going to keep them going, taking those real shallow breaths? That's right. But and it, they're, they're, it's not going to be nice for them. But when they take that little shallow breath, you need to kind of. It, it's a weird concept sometimes to think about ventilating somebody that's talking to you, right? But you might have to help them. You go ahead and fill those lungs up a little bit higher because you put in more oxygen, you get rid of more. Carbon dioxide. And again, alkalosis is high pH in the blood. High pH in the blood. Alkalosis. So that means they have little what? Hydrogen, little acid. And then acidosis is obviously low blood pH. You're going down the scale, but acid is accumulating, obviously. Alright. Y'all stretch yourself and show up. Okay, here we go. Continuing on. Uh, again, we're talking about factors that affect oxygenation and respirations. And you have intrinsic and extrinsic factors. Uh, external factors attachment of carbon monoxide molecules to the hemoglobin. Uh, <coughs> molecules can cause false pulse oximeter readings. Again, the, the carbon monoxide will adhere 200 times faster than oxygen will. Conditions that reduce surface area for gas exchange would be an internal factor. That's that flash edema associated or pulmonary edema associated with things like emphysema, um, I guess chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Intrapulmonary shunting. That's when the blood entering the lungs from the right side of the heart bypasses the alveoli and returns to the left side of the heart in, unox in an unoxygenated state. What can cause intrapulmonary shunting? And I don't care if you Google it or what you do. I don't care, but I want somebody to tell me in a reasonable amount of time uh, what causes intrapulmonary shunting. Pulmonary edema causes, so basically it passes through, but doesn't pick up oxygen, right? So that's pulmonary shunting. That's the term that you might hear again. Uh, respirations, pain and strong emotions, hypoxia, other conditions that affect the cells. All these things are going to affect oxygenation and, and, and respiration. Circulatory compromise, if you, you can pick up all the oxygen you want, but if you, uh, the, the heart, your vascular system, or whatever 
if there's a problem in some sort with either one of those and you can't circulate the blood, it doesn't matter how much oxygen is in it. It's just not going to get where it needs to be. PE, pulmonary embolisms, simple or tension pneumothorax, open pneumothorax, hemothorax, hemoneumothorax, all these things are going to cause... Um, She's just coughing? Yeah, go check on her. Make sure she's all right. All these things are going to affect the ability to get, and it doesn't matter what it is. You could sit here and list 500 different things, but anything causes the oxygen not to get to the cellular level where it's needed, then obviously it can't do what it's supposed to do. Heart failure, cardiac tamponade, Cardiac tamponades and tension pneumothorax are the two traumatic events that cause what type of shock? Obstructive shock. That's right. Vasodilatory shock, basically any of those that causes massive vasodilation. Um, anaphylaxis, neurogenic or spinal shock, whatever you want to call it. All right, acid-base balance. Um, we talked about this in a couple of chapters, I feel like, already. But there are four main clinical presentations. Respiratory acidosis, respiratory alkalosis, metabolic acidosis, metabolic alkalosis, right? So, she all right? Yeah, she's needing So, if someone has a narcotic overdose, what... Their, what's their main clinical presentation going to be? It's acidosis. Respiratory acidosis. That's right. How about uh, paralyzed or weak respiratory muscles? What will they suffer from? Respiratory acidosis. Same one. Because the muscles are weakened, so they're not breathing as well. They're accumulating carbon dioxide, therefore they're accumulating the hydrogen ions or the acid. All right, let's try a different one. What if they are hypoventilating? Respiratory what? Alkalosis. Acidosis. It's the same. Anything that affects your ability to breathe adequately. <clears throat> On the slow side, or not at all, it's respiratory acidosis. Don't let me trick y'all like that. So, how about cardiac arrest? There you go. We tracking now. All right. So, what if someone has taken too many antacid tablets? Metabolic alkalosis. Correct. What about crush syndrome? Metabolic acidosis. Uh, excessive vomiting. Metabolic alkalosis. That's right. What about a late sign of aspirin overdose? Metabolic acidosis. What about an early? That'd be respiratory acidosis, early, metabolic, late, because it's already started to absorb into the body at that point. But again, 
early on with aspirin overdose, they're gonna breathe deep and fast, right? Because they're trying to blow off some of that acid. And what about DKA? Metabolic. 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 50-50 shot. <laughs> DKA is diabetic ketoacidosis, right? You okay? Excess alcohol intake. <laughs> Excess alcohol intake. Metabolic acidosis. Oh wait, that's all the I can say that's what they did. All right, so severe dehydration. Have I said that one already? Metabolic acidosis. What if they have a panic attack? Y'all need to know these. And why is it important to be able to recognize adequate breathing? Why do you need to know what adequate breathing is? So you can recognize inadequate. So how many times a minute does the average adult breathe? 12 to 20. It should become in a regular rhythm or a regular pattern, right? You shouldn't have all those adventitious airway sounds. When you hear, you auscultate breath sounds on the left and the right, it should sound the same, and there shouldn't be any additional noises, okay? Adequate depth, that's that 500 cc's of tidal volume we talked about. All these things uh, delineate or make up eupneic respirations, right? Good and normal respirations. Respiratory distress, upper lower airway obstructions, inadequate ventilation, impairment of respiratory muscles, impairment of the nervous system, all of these things can cause dyspnea. Uh, and of course, left untreated, respiratory distress turns into what? Respiratory failure. Respiratory failure, does that mean they're not breathing? Does not necessarily mean that. You could be breathing, but respiratory failure means you're breathing in, in such a way that is not adequate to sustain life. You might be breathing three times, four times a minute. That would be respiratory failure. When you stop breathing altogether, which res respiratory distress untreated turns into respiratory failure. Respiratory failure left untreated turns into respiratory arrest. And respiratory arrest left untreated turns into cardiac. cardiac arrest and all of that can be broken a lot of times just by putting somebody on oxygen when you get there now depending on how severe they are of course that's going to dictate your delivery device whether it be nasal cannula normal breathing mask uh, back valve mask whatever the case may be but just putting them on oxygen makes all the, all the difference sometimes How's the patient positioned? They're in that tripod position. Head thrust forward, hands on their knees. You could usually tell just how severe the difficulty in breathing is by how far forward that patient is leaning, right? If you get there and they're laying flat at their back, 
smoking a cigarette and they take 30 minutes to tell you how they can't breathe. Now, you're going to treat the patient, right? But that's probably an indication that they're going to pull through, right? They're going to make it. But if they're setting up in that tripod position with that nasal flaring, you've got your supraclavicular retractions going on every time they breathe in. You see those accessory muscles being used. The skin's pale, cool, diaphoretic. They're talking uh, when those one to two word sentences, and it's probably something like, can't breathe, and that's all they can say. Well, now you know that's a different picture altogether, right? So, are they experiencing orthopenia? What does that mean? Those are the people that if you try to make them lay flat of their back, they will come unglued because they cannot breathe flat of their back. Orthopenia, okay? Is there adequate rise and fall of the chest? Is the patient gasping? What is the color of the skin? Is it moist, clammy, or the nares flaring? And again, with children, a lot of times, if they're really struggling and if they're really about to stop breathing, you might hear them grunt at the end of those respiratory cycles. When they exhale, you, huh, you hear that grunt. Huh. They'll be listless like you're holding a dish rag. That child's fixing to stop breathing. Is the patient breathing through pursed lips like the uh, emphysema patients do? Do you note any retractions? Again, it could be supraclavicular retractions. It could be between the ribs. But sick folks look sick, and you, you shouldn't have a hard time picking up on that. Is the chest wall moving in a symmetrical nature? The left side should rise just like the right side, and so on and so forth. Yeah, you can see... Uh, sternocleidal mastoid muscles, the pectoris major, the rectus abdominis, all those are being used to breathe. Um, of course, in reality, he probably would be setting up a little bit further than that if, he, if he's having that much difficulty breathing, but maybe he's not able. 12 to 20, again, uh, signs of inadequate breathing, less than 12, more than 20. If someone's breathing less than 10 times a minute and more than 30 times a minute, you should do what? Ventilate them. That sounds weird for somebody to be breathing over 30 times a minute and, and to talk about the fact that you should breathe more for them. But what's the very simple concept behind you doing that? Sir? You're putting air in there because they're breathing so fast, they don't have time to fully expand their chest wall, right? So they're not getting that 500 cc. So when they go to take that short, quick breath, fill them up real good, it forces them to expand their lungs and pull in more oxygen. And because of the added pressure gradients, now they're getting rid of more carbon dioxide and it, it could slow their breathing down for them. Does that make sense? Diminished, absent, or noisy auscultated breath sounds. If you put a stethoscope to the chest on both sides and left side is much harder to hear than the right side or vice versa, that's not really good. Or if you can't hear them at all, that's like really bad, right? If no air is coming in and out, uh, 
if someone's having a severe asthma attack, they could have what's called a silent chest. Those bronchioles could be so constricted that you don't hear, you don't hear air moving in and out at all. Uh, those that's a true emergency. Them folks have to have some epinephrine like like five minutes ago. So uh, diminished absence or noisy auscultated breath sounds, abdominal breathing, a reduced flow of expired air. Who has a hard time exhaling a lot of times? That's those asthma patients and that unequal or inadequate chest expansion. Increased worker breathing, shallow depth. Again, the skin's going to be pale, cool, mottled, cyanotic. And it's definitely going to be diaphoretic. Retractions, staccato speech patterns. That's that one to two word dyspnea that I've talked about a couple times already. You know, listen to the breath sounds. Fear for, feel for air movement coming out. And evaluate for pulsus paradoxus. There's something else I need you to look up in your book. Because registry is probably going to ask you about something to do with pulsus paradoxus. So what in the homemade hell is that? Do what? Okay, when what happens? On inspiration. When they take a deep breath, does blood pressure go up or does it go down? Huh? So, because if you're so if you're feeling their pulse, they take a deep breath. What will happen to that pulse temporarily? It'll go away. So, who, when we can you expect to see pulses paradoxus? And it is 10 millimeters of mercury or more. Cardiac tamponade or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patients may suffer from pulsus paradoxus. And if, if you're not 100% familiar with that, I would write that down. That just sounds like a registry test question to me. Uh, COPD and cardiac tamponade. Uh, serious head injury, still talking about inadequate breathing. If something is ataxic in nature, what does that mean? Medical prefix A or N means what? Okay, so, and I know we're not talking about whether you can pay your taxes or not here, right? Ataxic respirations or an ataxic gait. What's happening? Can't hear you. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> Basically, there is no pattern. There is no discernible pattern to their breathing. It's just kind of all over the place. And if you have an ataxic gait, that means you can't walk because your muscle activity is so uncoordinated. It's got nothing to do with this, by the way. But eight uh, serious head injuries you may, it may result in irregular, ineffective respirations that may or may not have an identifiable pattern, which would be ataxic respirations. But what are the ones that are or do have a discernible pattern that are associated with a head injury? Somebody look up Biot's respirations. 
B-I-O-T apostrophe S. Biots respirations. What does that say? Regular pattern rate and depth of breathing with intermittent periods of apnea resulting from increasing intracranial pressure. So increased ICP, well basically it's regular rate and rhythm, but just occasionally they just stop and then start back, right? That's biots. So what's the difference? Here's another one that's associated with uh, increased ICP, but it's called Shane Stokes breathing. What's the difference between Shane Stokes and biots then? Huh? It is rhythmic. There's a rhythm to it. But what's different about the regular rate and depth with periods of apnea associated with biots and Shane Stokes? <clears throat> there you go. Look at the picture. It's gradually increasing rate and depth. And then it starts to gradually decrease. And then there's apnea. And it gradually increases in rate and depth. And then it slows down rate and depth. It has a period of apnea. Does that make sense? They both mean the same thing. Increased ICP. Agonal gasps. Are those effective? Will they sustain life? That's that. Uh, that's that. That pretty much that last breath, right? Mouth comes open, chest wall may even rise and fall, but they're not moving in the air. Not even trying to be funny about it or anything, but it's like the fish laid on the bank of the lake, right? That mouth's coming open, but they're not really changing. They're not getting any oxygen, you know. Patient may appear to take a breath after his or her heart has stopped. Be vigilant when monitoring patients in respiratory distress because that's where it's heading if you don't fix it. Distress leads to failure, leads to arrest, leads to the other arrest. Right. Level of consciousness and skin color are excellent indicators of respirations and perfusion in general. The whole thick principle thing. And again, from across the room, you can look at them and you can tell. Breathing should not be hard. I mean, all y'all are doing it right now without even thinking about it. So... Uh, if they're working to breathe, skin's pale, cool, diaphoretic, and they have all these things, and you don't even you don't even have to put that pulse oximeter on them. You know. There, there's a million different versions of pulse oximeters. Who in here has never seen a pulse oximeter? Good, because. All y'all done done some rides or at least are working somewhere. I, you can't make this stuff up. I'm not going to call anybody by name, but a few years ago I taught an EMT class in-house at the Calvary County Fire Department. And as a guy that got hired like the same time I did at the department, during a break he come up and he was all happy about the fact that he actually checked somebody's pupils the day before, you know, and he had never done that before, and and he's happy with himself. And I didn't do nothing to diminish his enthusiasm, but I'm thinking, dog, you should have been doing that for years now. So I'm glad you y'all know what a pulse oximeter is. All right.
peak expiratory flow measurement to begin with is that, is that something that we're going to do in the back when the ambulance much what does your book tell you about that how do you measure peak expiratory flow to, to begin with does it even say okay you ain't gonna have one of them Alright, so here's the thing. The arterial blood gas analysis, again, that's not really something that we're going to do in the field. But do you need to know them numbers? Yes, you do. Did I give you those numbers already? I'm pretty sure I did, didn't I? Huh? Oh, pH, PaO2, PaCO2, the HCO3, the bicarbonate. I've given you all those. Really need to know those uh, because registry is going to ask you on your test. Again, entitled carbon dioxide. How do we measure that? There's different ways to do that, right? What would you say? Capnography is a way. What's another way if you're ventilating somebody? Now, capnography is is the um, that's the level one recommendation by American Heart Association now to have cardiac monitors that have uh, capnography capabilities. But there's another, have you ever heard of an entitled CO2 detector? That's when you put that little thing on your bag valve mask and it's between the endotracheal tube and the bag and it's got like a purple or a yellow colored screen. And then when you ventilate the patient, if the endotracheal tube is in the trachea, that's how you determine that, right? And that's the main purpose. Well, one of the main purposes of capnography to begin with, that's for the paramedic to confer his or her tube placement to make sure it's in the trachea and not in the esophagus. Because if it's in the trachea, when that chest relaxes and they exhale air, there should be carbon dioxide in there, right? So that's what a capnography that's what capnography does is it measures for that carbon dioxide and if it's not in there what do they know about their tube placement it's in the stomach so but this entitled co2 detectors and there's a picture of it in your book on somebody can somebody find that page 486 yeah figure 11 17 there that's the entitled co2 detector when you squeeze that bag and force oxygen in, and then you release the bag and the chest wall relaxes and that expired air comes out, if carbon dioxide passes across that screen, it'll change it to purple. End title, because that's title volume, right? That's the end of the title process. Does everybody understand that? And that what I just told you is a colorimetric device, obviously. But you have digital and digital waveform that comes along with the uh, built-in or integrated into your cardiac monitors. That would be a, a capnometer. Again, it provides a, a quantitative information. It'll show you the number. So that number is 38. Where are they at, you think? And if they're at 38, it's supposed to be... 35 to 45, right? So just as a general rule, how close do you think their pH is going to be to what it should be? Probably going to be pretty close, right? All right, so that's a capnometer. 
the capnographer is going to have a waveform. It'll be a waveform that'll be printed out onto the cardiac monitor screen. Uh, and again, we're looking at the exhaled or expired carbon dioxide levels. And what do you notice about that waveform? What does that kind of look like? Like a shark fin. And that's a phrase that you'll hear a lot. They're wanting to see that shark fin. Anything other than the shark fin may mean like if they have asthma, so those bronchioles are constricting when they exhale, it'll cause a difference or a change in the waveforms. Anything that affects that carbon dioxide levels is going to make the waveform look like something other than the shark fin. And again, capnography devices, you put that on just like a nasal cannula. And it says here that it also serves as an indicator of the effectiveness of chest compressions and the return of spontaneous circulation. If you're doing CPR on somebody and you have waveform capnography in place, now they're in cardiac arrest, so what type of readings would you expect to see initially if they're in cardiac arrest? You think you'll have a buildup of carbon dioxide? Yes, so the number's going to be way over 45, correct? Because they haven't been breathing. So if you're doing good ventilations and you've got good compressions going on and you're allowing for adequate refill time of the heart and you're really getting real close to that 70 milliliters with your compressions, what can you watch that that, that the the um, the values of that uh, capnography. What might you expect that number to start doing? Start coming back down toward that 45, right? Because you're adequately getting in oxygen, you're adequately removing carbon dioxide. Do you think watching those numbers with that waveform capnography as well? Do you think watching those numbers could indicate to you that you're about to get ROSC or you just got ROSC? What do you think the numbers are going to do when the heart starts back on its own? Whoop. And that's a lot of times you can predict the, oh, okay, we're doing something because you're watching that number start to go up. Does that make sense? All right. Good deal. Opening the airway. Who in here does not know when to do a head tilt, chin lift, and when to do the jaw thrust maneuver? What if you don't know? You said be safe? Yeah, and do the jaw thrust maneuver. If you don't know, be safe. Because if you treat them like a trauma patient and they're not, you haven't heard a thing, right? But no matter what you're doing, no matter what the scenario is, if they're giving you a scenario to where you've got a patient that you're dealing with or whatever, and they say you provide ventilation and there's no rise and fall of the chest, what is the first thing you want to do? Reposition the head and try again. Always answer with the most basic step first. Now, we're going to talk about the superglottic airways in this chapter. You know, the king airway, combi. To me, I'm a dinosaur in a lot of ways, but you just can't be the damn combi tube. That, that's my personal opinion, all right? You're probably not even going to have an option of a combi tube anymore. But uh, anyhow, that's not the point of what I'm saying. But um, no matter what your options are, if you haven't put an OPA in already, the answer is OPA. Even when you go take your paramedic test one day, if you got an option between an OPA and endotracheal intubation, do the oropharyngeal airway first. Always start basic 
with your answers and with your procedures and then go more advanced. Does that make sense? Head, tail, chin, lift. And I'm not planning on spending a bunch of time with this, y'all, unless I need to. Jaw thrust maneuver. Difference between medical and trauma. Who gets in the recovery position? Okay, and? And? Not injured. Unconscious, yeah. So that... The, creating that triangle with that top leg keeps them from falling over and occluding their airway, but it allows for gravity to allow normal secretions to come out and all that good jazz. So, suctioning. If you hear gurgling, what do you do? What do you do? Roll them on their side and suction. That's a fact. You've got hand-powered suction devices. You've got wall-mounted. You have battery-operated. And this will be a registry test, believe it or not. How many millimeters of mercury do wall-mounted suction devices have? Do, how many millimeters of mercury should they be able to accomplish? 300. 300. Why they want you to know that? It's a good thing to know, but there's a million other things that are good to know. But I've heard that question on as many tests as any other question I can think of. So that should be one gimme for y'all. How many, you have basically two types of suction catheters. What are they? French and Yonkers. There's two other names. French is also known as whistle tip, and they are designed to get what? Liquids, smaller particles. Yonkers also called the tonsil tip, and it's designed to get what? Chunks. Do you suction on the way in? How do you know how deep to suction? You want to get to the back of the oral pharynx, right? But what's a good, easy way to make sure you, you go in the right depth? Measure it on the side of their mouth like an OPA, right? And grab it with your finger right at the corner of their mouth. Then when you go in, Turn on the suction, you sweep from side to side as you remove the suction catheter. You suction an adult for no more than, a child for no more than, an infant for no more than, and what do you always monitor when suctioning a pediatric airway? Heart rate. Because you can pull the oxygen out, they don't have reserves, and you can throw them right into bradycardia. So. All this is still review, right? Okay. So, yep, we just talked about all that. We talked about all that. 300 millimeters of mercury. 15.10.5. And you definitely want to pre-oxygenate your patient prior to suctioning. Always remember that, too. OPAs, oral pharyngeal airways. They prevent the tongue from obstructing the glottis. How do you properly measure for an OPA? Corner of the mouth to the tip of the earlobe, or as registry likes to say, the angle of the lower jaw. It's the same thing, okay? Um, 
What's what's that hole in the center of that thing for? Yeah, that way if you insert the OPA and then they clamp down, you can still suction the airway through that hole in the middle. Uh, When is an OPA indicated? No gag reflex or unconscious, no gag reflex. When is it contraindicated? MPAs. How do you measure for the properly sized nasal pharyngeal airway? Tip of the nose to the earlobe or angle of the lower jaw. And again, it kind of looks like nose trumpets, right? If they have an intact gag reflex, but they're kind of out of it or unconscious, the beveled end goes against what? The nasal septum. That's correct. And what do we lubricate these things with? Water-based lubricant. What do we not lubricate these things with? Petroleum-based or we don't spit on them neither now. When are nasal pharyngeal airways contraindicated? Possibility of a basal or skull fracture. That is correct. All right. I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to stop right here.